Welcome to Optimist in Progress. Today we're in conversation with Tamika Drew. She's the founder of Beco Flower, a family-run cannabis company. She's based in LA and she's one of the leading cannabis industry executives, has a background in non-profit and social equity work, and she even ran for office backed by the Green Party. What I found fascinating in conversation with Tamika is her own personal health story and how she found her way into the cannabis industry. When she was at college, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which affected her ability to go to class while training as a lawyer. And that story of how she found cannabis as a way of treating her illness is central to her becoming extremely productive, incredibly accomplished, and most importantly, healthy as an adult. She's now the mother of four, and I really enjoyed the conversation with her and Drea to get her take on activism and the cannabis industry and how those two things coexist. I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Tamika. Hi. How are you? Doing great. How are you doing? And also happy to introduce you to Drea, who is a co-host of the podcast and uh, amazing clinical psychologist. Wonderful to meet you as well, Drea. Good morning. So great to meet you, Tamika. I'm really looking forward to getting your take today on social justice, social equality, through the lens of the cannabis industry, as well as hearing your journey through setting up Beco Flower, which is a, a fantastic company. But as we ground the conversation, as we start each conversation with, what is your take on optimism? Do you see yourself as an optimist? Is it something that even occurs to you? How does that affect how you see the world? I have to admit, I am definitely an optimist. Uh, I definitely do not have the right to not be an optimist in my life uh, after going through so many challenges and really finding ways to overcome those challenges. Specifically for me, I really started my adulthood struggling with Crohn's disease, just this debilitating digestive disease. And uh, pretty quickly after a couple of years, my outlook was very, very grim. And I really didn't see a way out. I was doing everything my doctors told me. I thought I was trying to live a pretty healthy lifestyle. And I was just getting worse and worse. But I was able to totally change my life around by uh, embracing cannabis as medicine. And with that, I was able to have a family. I was told I would never have kids. Uh, so for me, that really helped uh, spring into from from a pretty difficult rocky start to adulthood at 18 years old into really understanding that with kind of research and support through community and our ancient herbal medicinal traditions, uh, we can have an optimistic lifestyle no matter what is what is happening. I guess that that journey leading to Biko seems like a good kind of clear link from um, you discovering that medicine. Well, it's true. And really kind of rewinding back to my childhood, I, I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, to uh, a white mother and a black father. And we really dealt with a lot of racism and discrimination, really outright, blatant, just terrible stories that you wouldn't think would come out of the late 80s and early 90s. And that really colored my just my whole world. You know, I was really passionate to kind of work against racism and work as a civil rights lawyer at the time. And that really uh, colored my trajectory and, and just the way that I viewed the world and even the way I viewed kind of building community or, or not <laughs> kind of the limitations that I saw to building community, perhaps at the time. And, and even just the racism that I felt and the the way that it really made me question kind of who I was and and 
my grounding, you know, having a sense when you're a, a mixed girl in a very homogenous white society and when they're talking about slavery and they're making that like that is your lineage. You, you know, your people were slaves. You're basically one step away from a slave. And there's no there's no sense of really belonging um, to even the continent of Africa, let alone a region. So. When I got to adulthood, I decided I'm going to just do this ancestry DNA so I can find out at least for the first time where my my ancestors were from, where my people were from. And in that, I found that I was from Nigeria and I started to research that and I came across the word Biko, which is, is used very colloquially for please in that region. And that is why I named the company Biko, um, kind of in celebration of that. And, and then my husband is actually mixed as well and he has Korean heritage. And so we have a bunch of mixed kids running around and um, we decided to celebrate his heritage and their heritage uh, with the, the name of our first pre-rolls, which were our Juseo and our Juseo diamonds, meaning please pass me or please give me in Korean. So that really grounding of being able to celebrate family, celebrate community and feel um, a kind of pride in in myself and, and where I came from and my ancestry uh, and being able to kind of share that with the world has been has been amazing. I love hearing you talk about the celebratory aspect of this journey. As a mixed person, I struggled with this DNA testing era. Like, should I do it? Should I not do it? I have questions about, you know, how much of this kind of heritage can I really embrace or own? And to hear you talk a little bit about how that experience really not only shaped your own sense of self, but I also hear you say that it just gave you this guidance. It gave you this um, placement around how to honor uh, your heritage and to really just own that. Um, so I'm very inspired. I still haven't done the DNA test. I'm still on the fence about it, but I, I hope to do it eventually and, and um, follow a similar journey. As a psychologist, I always ask our guests about their upbringing. And I'm um, hearing you say that you did have some struggle and that, you know, of course, living in the U.S. in certain parts, in certain regions of this country in the 80s and 90s, um, there were lots of messages we got. I definitely want to talk to you about the just say no dare era that we probably both experienced that like really scared us about drugs and drug use. Um, but first, I do want to ask you about your family a little bit more. Were there people, um, family members, people in the community, in the neighborhood, is there, who in your life helped you shape that resilience identity? Well, I have to say that, you know, my parents were really amazing in the way that they brought us up as, as mixed kids in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. At the time, they were very open with us and very honest with us. And I think that's part of the, you know, the first step. But my mom in particular was really concerned with ensuring that I had a good background of a lot of uh, stories of Black people who had kind of risen up and done things that perhaps weren't being taught in school. So from a very early age, I had these kind of 
early reader childhood books. And one of them that really stuck out to me was the book about Nat Turner. So I'm learning about Nat Turner very early on. I'm, I'm like eight, you know, seven, eight years old reading these books about Nat Turner, shares my birthday. I'm really inspired. And, you know, my mom is very much egging me on. Maybe you're the reincarnation of Nat Turner. You never know. You know, you share a birthday. And just really feeling like I was surrounded by that, you know, very, um, at least at home, that celebration of heritage of all kinds, a lot more coming from my mom than my dad, to be honest. And kind of saying, you know, you can be one of these people, uh, you, you can really make a difference no matter what it is, because I think they saw very early that I was kind of had a big sense of of what justice was and and really wanted to kind of make my mark in some way. Uh, and uh, just kind of being pushed to take that journey in any way that it might that it might come along was was really critical for me. I'm I'm really interested in hearing about your social justice journey because we're talking to you today and and you're now the uh, entrepreneur, founder, and CEO of of Beco Flower. But actually, along the way, you've worked in a really involved way and been been deeply influential in social justice in different areas. So from Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign, the Liberty Tree Foundation, Forefront Ventures, uh, and you now do stuff with the Beco Flower Academy. What were the steps you took from feeling that in your family to starting to be active? So I'll tell you the truth. It was it was a very rocky ride from from very early on. I was probably in first grade when I decided I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer and had an idea of kind of what that was. And I really wanted to be this person who was helping check the police and check the government. So that was my whole goal coming up all the way through college. And then I got sick. And um, that was really difficult for me. But I still was kind of pushing on, trudging along, got into my first year of law school and really learned a devastating lesson that like, no matter how hard you work, you might get scholarships, you might be the top of your class. If you're poor and you're sick, you know, that higher level of academia just isn't for you if you do not have support, you know, true mm -hmm. financial support. So I, I did withdraw from law school my first semester at the, at the behest of my dean, who was like, you're going to get failed because you had to go to a doctor's appointment during a class. And one of these professors isn't going to wow. allow that. And um, they don't allow disability accommodations in law school. So I, I didn't really have very many choices. And so I found myself just in the real world all of a sudden, not in academia anymore, not having become a lawyer and totally just, you know, uh, had no direction, directionless <laughs> for the first time. Looking around, what do I do? The first thing I'm doing is going to the cannabis dispensary to get my medicine <laughs> to make sure I, mm -hmm. I can, can kind of continue to survive. And that is where I really first entered the industry was as a medical patient in the very early 2000s. And from there, uh, I began doing some writing and really began organizing at the community level in Los Angeles, doing uh, throwing an open mic that really was one part entertainment uh, and one part community activism of kind of 
having a fun, sexy, hip place to come and celebrate together, but also learn about what's happening in the community and organize because we wanted to really be able to kind of mix some of the older folks who are really experienced grassroots organizers doing things in the community with some of the younger kids that were coming up and kind of looking for new interesting things to be a part of. And so that was really successful. Um, the open mic was called Natural High. And in that journey, I, I joined the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign. I joined the Liberty Tree Foundation and began working on economic human rights and environmental justice. Uh, when I first joined the Liberty Tree Foundation, I was kind of recruited by Jill Stein and Sherry Honkala, who is a, Sherry Honkala is a close friend of mine, who's the head of the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign. And they're currently doing just amazing work, taking over houses in Philadelphia and putting homeless families into them and really inspiring folks to be doing that all over the country. Um, and uh, really just started organizing with them, doing that national grassroots work and really starting to understand that what we needed more than anything was convergence. And that's if, if you're working on climate democracy issues, understanding how those are connected to issues of racism and issues of poverty and, and issues of immigration rights and injustice and issues of kind of what we're doing in other countries militarily that are creating people needing to, to flee those countries and come here. And, and all of these things that are connected and, and understanding that all of these small groups needed to band together and, and be working kind of in tandem. and Interestingly enough, really starting to understand and obviously working on uh, prison abolition and um, against the war on drugs and really that becoming this catalyst for the cannabis regulations and really creating these these regulations that were revolutionary. What if we could have social equity and community reinvestment provisions in all of the regulations and the environmental mm -hmm. regulations that that determine what environmental companies do? Um, you know, oil and gas having to um, you know take into account the communities that they've harmed over the years. You know, these are the concepts that we've been working for so long and we're seeing it come to pass in, in cannabis. So getting into the cannabis industry and working on those issues was really just kind of that next step in convergence for me and really being able to see a connection and how we can start making money and sharing it in our community in a real way because donations aren't going to be enough. <laughs> you know, we have to have many different ways that we're, we're getting in here and trying to figure out how to rebuild our communities and, and make sure that our people are okay. Um, and so that's really... Uh, 30,000 foot view, I think of, of kind of the way that I've looked at my career and, and my career of moving from nonprofits now into a corporate cannabis world that I never thought I, I could possibly uh, want to be in or survive in. I never thought I would work for a corporation. I've organized against corporations for so many years. And um, now I've, I've worked for several within cannabis. So I find it to be something that we kind of need to do, though, to get inside those corporations, make them give us a seat at the table and ensure that we're helping build the policies and the programs within those organizations as well that we need. And I think that it is such a rapidly shifting industry you know there's headlines written every day about new states opening or legislation changes or how big the industry is going to be financially and where taxing is going to change 
looks like it, uh, cannabis now is illegal in only three states in the US and it's, it's uh, reducing all the time. But there is this tension in the industry between black and indigenous people of color being four times more likely to be arrested for possession um, and lots of generational imprisonment and destruction of family structures um, and, and real challenges to those communities with a history uh, when it comes to cannabis. It seems like there is this tension between kind of corporate cannabis and where the industry is, is really being um, powered by, you know, whether it's venture capital money or whether it's kind of huge investment companies moving in and social justice. How do you see those things being straddled? What's your view on the most constructive way forward there? So I'm going to break it into two separate parts. I think with the first part is kind of what we've been trying to build and what we've been building with our academy. Uh, so you mentioned a little earlier, I am the co-founder of our academy, which we did bring uh, together to be able to support these underrepresented entrepreneurs and BIPOC entrepreneurs in the space, not only with uh, workshops, teaching, skill shares, where you know corporations are actually coming and donating their time and energy and in some instances dollars to help make the program run, uh, but we're also ensuring that they are coming on and offering their mentorship time and their networks because we're finding that that's one of the things that we really lack the most. You can come in and you can learn things in a course, but if you don't have people who over time are invested and continue to check in and find out what you need and who you might need to meet in their network, that's what's keeping you from being able to actually make deals, find alignment, find all the resources that you need. So uh, making sure that as businesses, consumers are uh, really expecting these corporations to be offering their their time, their energy, their resources, and their money towards programs like our academy and, and others, organizations like Supernova Women, um, like the Original Equity Certification, who are working to really help ensure that we're knowing the supply chain and when they are underrepresented entrepreneurs that we're supporting. Um, but also, I think we have to be really careful when we're seeing social equity programs and we're celebrating investment from some of these uh, larger corporations and these venture capitalists, because what seems to be happening is a really low valuation of social equity businesses, especially social equity mm. retail storefronts. So if you're, you know, as a social equity license holder, typically you have to hold a certain amount of equity in the business, just a little bit above the majority, usually 51%. And then uh, let's say a company comes in and they say, okay, I'll give you three hundred to $600,000 of investment to operationalize that storefront. And I will come in and we'll own 49% of that business does two things to the operator. At first, it might seem great. You're going to have this money. You're going to be able to operationalize the storefront, but it's not going to be enough to operationalize the storefront. That amount of money mm. isn't, right? There, there's no city in the country, yeah. I don't think, that you can open a retail storefront for, you know, uh, even $600,000. Um, and there's no way that you can dilute your, you know, your percentage in the company because you're the social equity uh, holder of the license. So it, it becomes that 
your company has now been purchased by this, uh, you know, your partner for a very low valuation. And typically you might not even see any upside to, to that at all until the company sells later on. You may, you may not be getting any kind of a stipend. You may not be getting payment. Um, so it's really just kind of utilizing a social equity person's verification to be able to get that license, take the rest of that equity from them, tell them, you just wait a couple years till we can sell this license and then you'll get a payout, maybe a half a million dollars, you know, and you should be happy about that because we know you used to be poor and you lived in a disproportionately impacted neighborhood and this is your lucky day you know, instead of valuing those retail storefront locations in the same way as they are other retail storefronts that they're purchasing from more traditional looking business people. <laughs> I, that's really interesting. So actually there's a kind of, by, by being part of the, the social equity program, it's actually putting, potentially putting a really big glass ceiling on growth. Absolutely, absolutely. And obviously, not everyone, not every program, not every corporate program that is built is going to drain all of the extra equity out of the business. Sometimes they might not take equity at all, and they might find other ways to be able to support that social equity applicant or their business. Um, but a lot of the models that I've seen kind of being celebrated in the media, I think that in, in a year or two or three, we're going to have social equity entrepreneurs who are saying, you know, this business was valued too low. Now I have no ability to grow my stake in it. And it was really unfair. And, and, and when we know that, that a lot of these businesses, they're paying $5 million, $10 million, $20 million for retail storefronts that are currently in operation. So, you know, there has to be a balance. And, and I feel like everyone is trying to move very fast. And, and so hopefully, you know, we can have a little bit of a level setting of expectations there. But uh, part of the problem is there's not enough folks who are on the other end who know enough about these deals and, and know enough about even the market valuations. If you're not a cannabis executive or an industry professional, how are you going to know what a retail storefront is worth? Somebody says a, a million dollar valuation, that might sound great to you when you don't know it should be five million or it should be you know, uh, whatever it is. So it's uh it's definitely why we need more professionals who are able to give advice to social equity entrepreneurs for free or for you know a very discounted cost and more programs coming together to be able to share those resources in the spirit of convergence i'm thinking about how the medical and scientific field can be in support of these movements um and i'd say that historically there have been some highlights and some help and also setbacks that scientists have introduced to this discourse. Not too long ago, in 2020, the American Psychological Association issued a very comprehensive request to the government, actually asking them to reduce the regulatory standards around researching cannabis. When I reviewed that, in particular, was the very clear statements that scientists are kind of behind because we're not able to access the strains and variants and the essentially the cannabis that's in the industry, right? And how can we perform this research and demonstrate benefits and you know get all this information out there to help people understand cannabis use and misuse? in order to uh, to really be as as you pointed out like 
to be in convergence, to really be a part of this uh, community movement. And it's disappointing that it's only recently that scientists have asked for um, funding, for fewer regulations, for access. It's really quite interesting. I'm curious uh, to hear from you, your perspective, especially since you've been been a consumer, you've been a recipient, you've been a patient. How do you see the medical world uh, transforming in alignment with uh, with the work that you do? I really feel that the medical community and scientists are absolutely critical in the normalization debate. And I think that without the support of science and the medical community, we will have a very difficult time ensuring we keep the kind of medicine that we need, that we're able to keep producing the really beautiful and, and highly potent medicine that so many of us require, especially after many, many years of medicating with the plant. Um, I also feel that, you know, I, I personally have met Dr. Sue Sicily several times, and she's really been working uh, on the forefront of trying to get the adult use community to understand what is happening in the world of medical research and the fact that they're trying to make claims about cannabis based on just moldy old brickweed that they have to be provided by the government that's been sitting around since maybe 1960. And just to hear these stories and really think, you know, this is where we're at right now, considering there's these beautiful state-of-the-art labs that have just the most you know, high potency crystal flowers that we could be finding out so many different, you know, so much information about the terpenes and so, so much more than we know. And we're learning so much every day outside of, you know, what is being reported and kind of what is being normalized in the mainstream news and the media. And so I, I really just, I can't wait until we have some legislation that catches up to our needs to really ensure that we're moving at the pace that makes sense. I mean, cannabis is now a, a global product and it's it's an ancient medicinal drug. And I think that we just really need to um, be realistic and, and kind of, you know, get with the program in terms of the information that we know we can we can have if we would just, you know, stop being stop being ridiculous. <laughs> there's, no, there's no better word. I, I mentioned earlier the era that we grew up in um, and the messaging that we received as kids about drug use and and just the um, you know the blatant harmful ways that we received that information, but also how that was a tool that was a mechanism um, that, as we learn later, uh, was actually meant to harm us. Uh, and it's it's truly a discovery uh, for me to realize that I. I really was influenced by um, these messages and, and by the media. And I also admit that there's so much more to learn about the use of cannabis, especially as it relates to healing and recovery. Uh, and I know that studies have shown that cannabis use can uh, improve uh, side effects from other medication, that it can reduce nausea, that it can help with chronic pain. And again, the field of psychology is behind because 
we, you know, like you mentioned, we, we don't quite have access to particular strains and the state of the science that, that really requires this comprehensive research. Um, but also I think maybe in relation to the eighties and nineties, there's this fixation on addiction and that's sort of a barrier for us. And I think it's important to, especially for our audiences to say, you know, notice that you are saying adult users. Notice that in order for me to access your site, I have to make it through a portal that says that I'm 21 or over. And I just want to elucidate, I, I want to name that um, because we we do know that young people who are um, using, not just experimenting, but actually using cannabis in a day-to-day pattern to address mental health conditions like anxiety, depression, and trauma um, are likely to become addicted or to develop uh, a, a secondary mental health condition related to that drug use. And so I appreciate your responsibility around this. I appreciate that you're talking about adult usage. When our brains are already fully developed, um, early 20s, mid 20s, um, this then becomes a different conversation. I wonder if there's anything you can add to that. That's certainly how I responded to your company. Well, I really appreciate that. And I definitely think that there's a big difference between adult use and medicinal use as well, right? And, you know, when it comes to this plant, and and we were totally propagandized by the D.A.R.E. program. You know, it wasn't even influenced. It was literally propaganda to young children. Um, And, you know, to put the plant right next to crack and cocaine and heroin and to say this plant and, and these synthesized drugs are the same and they can, they can do the same damage to your body. Um, you know, that, that was a dangerous message. Right. And I think because of that, we, we do, it even colors our, our thought process about cannabis as a medicine, um, knowing that, you know, there are so many, uh, stories of children who are given just really debilitating drugs that are not working for them, not working for their seizures or not working for their, you know, whatever rare genetic condition that they might have. And if they turn to cannabis medicine under a doctor's care and, and with, you know, utilizing it as a true medicine, it can be um, incredibly therapeutic for them and has a different response to your body. I mean, myself, you know, having been uh, given, prescribed so many drugs for, for migraines, for pain, uh, so many debilitating steroids uh, for, my, um, for my stomach and my Crohn's disease. Um, and then really being able to, once I started to use cannabis medicine, compare you know, which one of these is affecting me more, which one of these is making my my head spin more, which one of these is making me lose memory, which one of these is, is affecting my body in, in a bad way. And I could really have a comparison. And when we talk about adult use, um, totally, totally separate from talking about cannabis as a medicine, we're then looking at it and comparing it with other things that we use, you know, that we're saying are for adult use, tobacco, alcohol, which we know have, you know, uh, a a very negative effect on our body. I'm thinking when I was 18 years old, suffering from Crohn's disease, I could go into a bar and I could, you know, buy, I I could at least buy cigarettes. Um, 
that in and of itself is tearing up my stomach. It's making my my whole body worse. It's something that I'm allowed to purchase as an 18 year old. That's just going to debilitate me. Um, but then once I'm 21, when I was in California, I could go into a dispensary and I could purchase pre-rolls or I could purchase cannabis. And that was actually healing my, my stomach and my body and, and kind of reversing the effects of some of those things that I was able to do even younger in, in a, in a state of, uh, you know, kind of consumerism where we make these decisions about what's healthy or what's not based on kind of corporations and pharmaceutical companies and, and government kind of different, you know, things that are happening culturally. So, you know, once you've had certain experiences, the reality of the plant um, and, uh, you know, the, the way that it should really be seen as, as a medicine over here and also as kind of a safer way to um, have, have a good time as an adult versus some of the other already legal vices, um, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. And knowing also that, you know, we can, we can feel addicted to so many different things, but there is a difference between a chemical addiction, like what, what a narcotic gives you, and the feelings and experiences that you're getting with cannabis physically in your body. Can we talk about the plant for a bit? I know that with Bico, you take a huge amount of care of what is in your products and I know that it's also a very young industry that's moving really fast there's loads of different ways of of growing cannabis some of it is in California you can grow outside and some people say that that's better in other states where the climate's different they've got these incredible hydroponic um, villages where they're growing very fast very powerful cannabis uh, undercover because of uh, temperature I know that in other, if you look at food, there's been a huge amount of learning over the last, particularly the last decade about, you know, how important the chemicals that are used or aren't used in the growth of the vegetables and fruit that we're eating, where things are grown, how things are grown, organic, those kind of things. I think people have become more aware of fair trade and other stamps when it comes to food. When it comes to cannabis, what's your view on, you know, biodynamic or organic what can people look out for to to see that what they're getting is grown in a, in a way that is good for their body and potentially not in a way that could could harm them yeah that's a really really great question um i think that specifically you know there are different types of companies in the space right now and one of the things that we've been talking about kind of as a larger community are, are you know the types of people that we want to trust in curating our cannabis and oftentimes medical patients have a certain way that they're looking at the plant and at all consumer goods they're looking at it as a patient they're thinking about patient needs they're thinking about allergies or you know things that you might have a difficulty with so very much with myself as the founder of Bico and my experience as a medical patient that's very front and center for for us and our ethos and our values of just really ensuring that our our plan is always going to be our products are always going to be um, not only, clean and and you know beautiful that that you can trust uh, but you can also trust that they're going to be strong and they're going to be you know what um what we say they are 
part of the interesting thing about where we are in our growth journey is we're still very small. We're very family run. We're a very small team. So I'm literally doing the R&D and, and helping do the choosing on, on every single thing that we do with Pico. So, you know, if, if I'm trying one of our pre-rolls in R&D and it's feeling any way, it's a little harsh to me. I don't like the flavor or anything at all. You know, we're moving on to something different. And I think that is something that's still really kind of fun for us and unique that we have. And my husband is actually our COO and, and he does a lot of our kind of supply chain um sourcing. And one of the things that's really important to us as well are really working with entrepreneurs who um, underrepresented entrepreneurs who are incredibly passionate about the plant, just like we are. Um, and, you know, there's definitely, like I said, kind of different ways to, to look at, at these businesses. And um, so many of us, these are our passion projects. This is artistry for us. This is, you know, being able to build a beautiful experiences for people um, where we can't necessarily go hang out with all of the folks that, that we love in our, in our communities, but we can, we can create beautiful things that they can use for their rituals and their parties and their self-care um, that make us feel like we're connected. And I think that there's nothing wrong with um, a corporate cannabis model where you've got, you know, just large amounts of canopy and it's, you know, it's kind of sterile and you have uh, certain cogs, but that's not what we are at Bico. Um, and I think that there's definitely space in the industry for a variety of different types of, of ways that we're bringing products together and, and these experiences. But I think that when you want to be kind of jumping into a real unique cannabis experience, um, ensuring that the supply chain and that the folks that your brand are working with are people that you would also want to support and that, you know, kind of have stories and, and connection to the plant that you resonate with. I think that's really important. And that's definitely something that we're cultivating with our supply chain at Bico. That's awesome. And you've mentioned a couple of people already, but I'm really interested to hear who from uh, business inspiration point of view uh, is or or from a professional point of view who is your inspiration there are really so so many people to be honest um, but I I was thinking about this and I, I do want to mention that as I've been building this business a big part of the reason I've been able to build this business is because I also have a corporate cannabis career um, and I've worked, you know, as, as a vice, uh, as a vice president at Forefront Ventures. And then now I've moved over to Stacks, the, the plant touching subsidiary of Ease. And at both of those really kind of large corporations, I had some really incredible female leadership that were there in these chief positions at Forefront. It was Lise Rosman. She was the chief growth officer, and she was actually the person who brought me into the organization. And having that be the fir my first experience and my kind of first boss in big corporate cannabis, having it be a woman and a real trailblazing woman who was kind of formerly the COO, and um, really having that set the tone for what I would be able to achieve in this industry if I continued to work hard. Um, and then now at, uh, at Stacks, we have Tony Kim, who brought me in, who's an amazing CEO of Stacks. But at, on the east side, we have Megan Miller, who is our COO, who has really been just like an amazing collaborator and someone who has been kind of 
uh, mentoring me and and is an amazing uh, leader and to just be in such a male dominated industry and have uh, women in the C-suite who are kind of willing and able to help me understand what I might need to do to make my rise into the C-suite, I think is, is incredibly important because we, especially as people of color in this industry, are not going to be able to make the waves that we want to unless we're able to be seen everywhere, not just as the people. We shouldn't have to create our own businesses to be in the C-suite, to be people that are in charge helping make decisions. We should be able to make those, you know, those meteoric rises just like we see everybody else doing um, in, in other industries. So I think this is our time and this is an industry that is kind of open to it, even though we do need to continue to bust through those doors and, and, and make demands. And, you know, like I said, having worked specifically with women who have been in those positions of power in these corporations has really been inspirational to me. And it's such intentional work, certainly as an entrepreneur, as an activist, as a, as a leader, as a mother of four kids, you're busy. And I wonder what you do to take care of yourself. I acknowledge that from an early age, you probably had to focus on your well-being a lot. And, and how does that look now? Are there practices that you try to uh, fit into your day? How do you take care of your your own resilience and restore your energy? This is a really great question, to be honest, because it, it is hard for me to fit in some of those kind of more traditional self-care, regular rituals and regimens. But over time, I feel I have definitely learned how to take better care of myself. And part of that is has been in really giving myself an easier time, kind of loosening my own expectations on how things should be. I'm really lucky because my husband is my partner in all things, and we both work in the industry. He works, you know, with Biko, with me, and he's very understanding of exactly what what I'm going through in my day-to-day life and vice versa. And I think just being relaxed about kind of the state of the house, for example, you know, feeling like we can take this night off on a Friday night and let the house be a wreck and just enjoy Friday night together, kick up, watch a movie, hang out, cuddle a little bit. That's self-care to me, you know, being able to know that you can push some things off till later and just enjoy life when there are moments that come up that you don't want to, that you don't want to leave. And I think that even as we build the business, just something doesn't go right or if, if, you know, mistakes are made, really being able to be a little easier on yourself than perhaps you even then you feel you have the right to do give yourself that grace and that that easy time that you might give somebody else because often so often you know we we give ourselves a harder time than we would ever give anybody else in our lives we you know we have these standards for ourselves that are unreasonable at least i know i do and so that's been a big part of my meditation for myself is that you know you are enough you are doing everything that you can and you know you, you're on a path and it's everything is fine even if i don't feel like i've reached all my goals for the week or if i haven't gotten through my checklist um being able to give myself that 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 space um is really the best self-care that I that I can. And I, I notice when I'm not doing it too, when I'm focused on that checklist and I'm not giving myself that time um, 
to to just relax a little bit and not have to worry about about what's next because there's always work. There's always something. <laughs> uh, but I think you articulated it really well. Um, we are often many of us, especially if we have multiple roles, have these really high standards for ourselves and it's actually very empowering when we just remind ourselves of our agency. Yeah, I can actually give myself the afternoon off or just pause. And like you said, just kind of let the house sit and, and relax. Um, that can be an incredible way to restore energy and, and just kind of refocus. So thank you for sharing that. Tamika, I've, I've loved this conversation. It's been great to hear your story. And, and before we go, I'd just love to see if there's any cultural inspiration that you take. So if there's a, a track or a book or anything that you've seen that's been of inspiration to you recently we can put it in the show notes we could even put it on our optimist in progress playlist is there anything that has given you inspiration in the last few weeks that you'd like to share well i will just say that someone who has been incredibly inspirational to me lately is our director of community engagement her name is luna love bad and she is an artist and i've been kind of bumping her various tracks you can find her on spotify you can follow her on instagram but she is she's an activist in the lgbtq space and she is just a, a really phenomenal powerhouse she's been doing so much to help bico and really um let people know about what we've been working on in our creator circle and um, has really been just lifting up the work of, of so many important folks in the community and the queer community. So I would just love to kind of shout her out and, and have folks go in and check her out and support her music. That's a, a fantastic recommendation. We'll, we'll put links to all of her work in the show notes. Tamika, thank you so much today. It's been amazing to hear your story um, of health, uh, social justice, entrepreneurship, motherhood, um, and all those in between that have helped form um, the company that you're running and, and, and how you're approaching it. So thank you. I've uh, found it a really inspiring conversation. Such a pleasure to meet you. And again, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your roadmap. Uh, I love learning about that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing to connect with both of you today. Thanks for listening to Optimist in Progress, presented by Dr. Dre Letamendi and me, Tom Johnston. With research by Lisa Farr Johnston, original music by Reg Science Perry, edited by Brian Ward, and produced by Aginia O'Dell. Thank you to today's guest, Tamika Drew, and you can follow her at Biko Flower on Instagram. Her personal Instagram is Tamika, T-A-M-I-K-D-R-E-W, Tamika Drew. Please email us at podcast at Optimist Drinks and follow at Optimist Drinks on social media. Thanks for listening.